Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Skywatcher What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. If this is your first time hanging out with us, like I said, we do this every Friday. These episodes are generally live, but they are recorded, so if there's anything that you missed or if there's an episode that you want to go back and check out, um, they're all recorded onto the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel as videos, so you can always go back and check out anything that you may have missed. Now, the What's Up webcast, we cover everything from what's up into the nighttime sky to equipment, like what we're doing today, helpful tips and tricks for uh, imaging and viewing, and of course, at the end of the month, we talk about uh, a special guest who's on to talk about their experiences in the field of astronomy. So... Um, for those of you who have been with us before, thank you. Uh, welcome back. Happy Friday. Uh, we've been watching the Perseid meteor shower or getting some imaging done while it's been fairly dark out there. Um, but we're glad to have you here this morning and hope you liked our new intro. Uh, that is our new updated intro with the Skywatcher Green. And we've also got our new mic set up. So hopefully the sound sounds really good today. Uh, so we're making some good upgrades uh, to make this even better and, you know, just have a good time. So once again, thank you very much for just hanging out with us uh, this morning. Now, today we're going to be talking about a very popular uh, product line that is our FlexTube SynScan Dobbs. And I kind of jumped ahead of myself real quick. Um, if you like what you see here and you want to keep in touch, uh, go ahead and hit the subscribe button on the channel here. It really does help us out, gives us the numbers to keep this thing going. And um, yeah, so please go ahead and subscribe. If there's any questions you have about the What's Up webcast, go ahead and email us at info at skywatcherusa.com, title it What's Up, and we'll be happy to get that for you and respond over to you. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much the What's Up webcast. Uh, today, like I said, we're going to be talking about the Skywatcher FlexTube SynScan Dobbs. Uh, these are our go-to Dobsonian line. Uh, there's actually a lot of features on these, so we're going to kind of go through and talk about them. If you have any questions, throw them up in the chat. We'll be happy to get to those. And uh, hopefully this is fun and informative on this particular line of scopes that we offer. So let's get started on that. So as some of you are probably well aware, uh, the FlexTube designs are a Dobsonian telescope, um, but they do, a Dobsonian basically is a Newtonian on a Altaz Lazy Susan uh, style mount, and as some of you are probably, like I said, Dobsonians are Newtonians, but um, if you're looking at doing that, if you're looking at doing a Dobsonian, uh, they are Newtonian, especially if you're a beginner, maybe you don't know that, that's why I threw that in there. So anyway, let's kind of break this down. Uh, Newtonian telescopes use a parabolic primary and a flat elliptical uh, secondary mirror. Now, elliptical just means that the shape is elliptical, but it is an optical flat. There's no magnification on it. There's no curve to it. It's just literally bouncing light off the uh, secondary. So uh, how these generally work is light comes in from whatever you're looking at, your object of choice comes down, hits the primary mirror. Again, that primary mirror is parabolic, so it has a curve uh, to it, which allows it to focus light onto the secondary. And then the secondary bounces the light up into the focuser there, holding uh, your focuser and eyepiece and whatever you're doing. So go ahead and check that out. And uh, that's basically how a Newtonian works right there. Uh, very simplistic design. There's not a lot that can go wrong with it. And it's, yeah, not a lot that can go wrong with these uh, particular telescopes. They're very simplistic. Uh, the Newtonian design was developed by Isaac Newton uh, around 1668. And it's obviously come a long way with the different aperture sizes and all the technology, which we're actually covering today. Um, simple design, just with two mirrors. There's not a lot that can really go wrong with these. Uh, once again, I, I've had people have issues with them. It's usually because you're going too quick. You want to slow down. Don't overcomplicate the Dobsonian design. 
Um, big advantages of the Newtonia are just the large apertures that you can get. They do have, tend to have faster optics um, comparatively, uh, and they're affordable for their size. Uh, you can get a lot of power or a lot of light gathering power for not a lot of money in comparison um, on that. So let me take a look here. Sorry, we're still working on some stuff here um, for our audio. So we'll take a look at that here. So, sorry, uh, let's get back onto it. Uh, the Dobsonians uh, were, you know, if you're not really familiar with the Dobsonian, it's one of the most popular amateur telescope designs available on the market. They're very affordable. They come in a, from a range of manufacturers, from mass-produced, kind of like what we do here at Skywatcher, all the way to big custom-sized uh, telescopes. There's really no range of limitations for a Dobsonian. It's kind of, no pun intended, but it's kind of sky's the limit. If you have big enough pockets, you can go as big as you want as far as aperture is concerned. Um, you know, I aware of uh, telescopes that are you know 40 50 60 inch in aperture that are dobsonian designs from certain manufacturers so if you want to go ultra big and you've got the coin for it go for it um but the nice thing is in comparison to say like a schmacassa grain or some of the other designs if you're looking for a decent aperture telescope for visual work a dobsonian is probably going to be your best bet because it's generally going to be more expensive in another design. Like if you want a eight inch Schmidt Cassegrain, um, it's probably going to be on a go-to mount. You're probably looking at about $2,000 ish, not a bad setup. And it's going to have a longer focal length, but you're looking at probably a couple extra grand roughly, uh, for something of that size or an eight inch refractor is going to be mind boggling how much that would be where an eight inch daub you can normally get an eight, a basic eight inch Dobsonian for under 500 bucks. So, or less actually. So there's some pretty good, easy options out there. And that was kind of the whole thing with John Dobson, who created the Dobsonian in 1965, that it was meant to be something that was uh, very simplistic, at large aperture, portable at an affordable price. Um, he was encouraging people to make their own, um, you know, by grinding their own mirrors and getting the tubes from a hardware store. And he was out there with the San Francisco Sidewalk Astronomers, where he was at, out on the street corner showing people the moon with his telescope. So it's quite amazing how that uh, whole story started. If you want to know more about John Dobson, you can go online. There's all kinds of stuff about him there. But he is really the father of the, the Dobsonian design, and it was his whole goal to make astronomy more um, obtainable to the masses. And, of course, companies like Skywatcher and such have gone on to actually produce these telescopes and hopefully extend that legacy even further, getting Dobsonians into the hands of more people and allowing people to experience the nighttime sky with a decent-sized telescope now. And of course, we all lovingly know these as light buckets. So, you, you know, put a big eight inch mirror, big, you know, when we're talking Dobsonians, big is relative. There's all kinds of, you know, sizes that you can get. Like I said, you can go as big as you want. But uh, in our line, we go up to about 16 inch in aperture, which is a decent size. And we're going to talk about that uh, later in the presentation here as we get into each model. But Dobsonians are a great if you're just interested in doing visual work you want a lot of aperture a Dobsonian is honestly the way to go it's gonna be the easiest way for you to get big aperture and when I'm talking about that we're normally talking about 12 inch and bigger because as you get past that 10 inch range your options as far as designs really goes down um, Schmidt Cassegrains you can normally get up reasonably you can get up to about a 12 or you know 11 12 12 inch uh when you get up to the larger ones like a 14 and 16 they get very big they're very ungainly um and the mount required to hold those tubes is not the most uh portable system in the world so it really becomes a headache 
if you want anything bigger than that, you know, 10 inch plus, uh, there's not a lot of options. You know, you do have the Schmidt cast grains, like I just mentioned. Refractors, you can forget about it once you pass six inch. Um, but there's something really awesome when you get that much aperture and you're doing visual work. You can really dig into the nighttime sky a lot more effectively and see those little faint funny funnies, fuzzies that you're looking for, um, especially when you're out at a star party and stuff like that. So the largest Dobsonian, I'm sorry, the largest telescopes that are going to be available to the amateur market are going to be in the Dobsonian design. Um, there's just no beating it, especially if you're serious about deep sky observing and you want to see those little tiny fuzzballs or those, you know, really uh, gem objects like the Ring Nebula, Dumbbell, uh, Orion, all those fun things um, in exquisite detail. Um, aperture is where it's at for visual observing. And the best and fastest way to do that is a Dobsonian. And I don't really care where you get them from. We appreciate if you get them from us. But, I mean, I don't care where you get them from. It's just a great experience to go out and observe under a dark sky with a Dobsonian where it's real clean and simplistic and just enjoy all that aperture and light going into your eye. So, Dobsonians are the way to go if you're serious about visual work. So, let's talk about our series the flex tube sin scan series we do make two versions of the flex tubes we have the manual ones as well as the sin scan which is our go-to's and that's what we're going to be focusing on today um, all the major specs also apply to the standard flex tube models although we do not carry all five aperture sizes in the flex tubes any longer at the moment um, but the sin scan series does have all five aperture sizes and we're going to kind of uh, break that down and check all that out so so like i said it's it's the standard newtonian design we use parabolic mirrors uh, we do use borosilicate glass um, on our telescopes that helps keep the thermal properties of the mirrors um, better uh, very similar to pyrex uh, so as the temperature changes your mirror figure isn't going to shift a whole lot uh, so it gives you that sharp, stable images throughout the night as the temperatures fluctuate. So we do use a, a borosilicate glass. Um, we do have the standard elliptical secondary. Our secondaries are oversized for their for the telescope size. Uh, that's to have better illumination. Um, we generally like to have 100% illumination at the eyepiece there. So um, if you are comparing our secondaries to some more custom-made models of the same aperture sizes there you could probably get a smaller secondary which would help with contrast a little bit but we do use oversized secondaries and there's actually a reason for that um, other than illumination and we're going to actually talk about that because there's some advantages of why you need a larger secondary with some of the other features that we do on these models so we'll get to that in a second i don't want to jump ahead too much um the nice thing about these particular models is they are blending that large aperture 8 to 16 inch aperture sizes with go to and tracking. I know that's one of the biggest concerns ultimately um, with people who have uh, standard Dobsonians is you have to nudge the telescope all the time. It gets kind of annoying doing that and especially when you have a bigger telescope maybe you have to climb up a ladder it's hard to go up and down and adjust everything and keep up with the object as the as the night progresses. So having tracking as well as go-to to locate an object is helpful. So these particular models do have go-to systems in the base. They It is built in to the base. It's not like you can just add it. Um, this base is custom to this these particular optical tubes. So it's there's not a upgrade path. So if you are looking to do one of our Dobsonians and you're de deciding between manual or go-to, you have to make that decision at the point of purchase. Um, there is no go-to upgrade option at this time that's available. Now, like I said, it does come in five different sizes and we kind of cover the range pretty well. We go eight inch, 10 inch, 12 inch, 14 and 16. So there's kind of something for everyone. Um, that is a pretty healthy range of aperture sizes that at least one person could handle on their own. Um, we did have a prototype 18 inch uh, a long time ago, and that was not going to happen. Very impressive sitting on its own, way too big to handle as an individual. So uh, 16 is kind of the cutoff uh, there, right there. So 
But um, those are our five aperture sizes. If there's nothing there for you, then sorry. But with those aperture sizes, there's there's enough there to where you could really get serious about doing some deep sky observing. And we're going to break down the advantages of all five models here shortly. So we'll all go into the details of that. Um, let's go into the features of these. These are features that apply to all five uh, models. Now, there are certain features that are particular to particularly the larger models, and I'll point those out here in a second. Um, but these major features I'm about to cover are doing are the major features of the whole line. I know there's some questions in there. I will get to them probably towards the end, um, but keep sending them in. I'll go over the questions as we get towards the end. That's a typo, um, so you can get rid of that right there. Should have said flex tube, so ignore that. Uh, our coatings are actually the same on the Quattro series. That's why it's there. Uh, the coatings are the same on all of our mirrors. Uh, we use an, there we go, that's all fixed. Uh, we use a 94% reflectivity coating. We do have a quartz overcoat on it just to make sure those coatings are going to last a long time. Uh, most professional telescopes, like on observatories up on a mountaintop, they do not have hard coatings on or protective coatings on their mirrors. That's generally why every two years or so they have to uninstall the mirror and recoat the primary mirrors. It's just too big of a surface to really go through all of that effort. Uh, most of the large observatories generally have a coating machine in-house up on the mountaintop. They can take the mirror out, scoot it over the, the vacuum chamber, and do a new brand new coat of aluminum and put it back in the telescope. Now, us as amateurs don't generally have that capability, and these mirrors are small enough to where you can put a, a protective overcoat on them so it lasts a long time. Generally, a good mirror coating, as long as it's kept in a good environment and it doesn't have a lot of, you know, uh, like a lot of dew and stuff that might corrode the coatings, you can get over 10 years of use on a good coating, um, especially if it's kept dry and there's not, you know, a lot of, it's not so much dust, but just stuff that's going to be corrosive uh, to those optical surfaces. But you can get at least a good 10 years or so out of a good optical coating. Uh, the nice thing about a lot of these mirrors is you can pull the mirrors out of the mirror cell and you could just ship the primary mirror to a coder if you ever need to get these redone. It's not unheard of. It's not a difficult process. And being that most of these are 16 inches smaller, it's not that expensive to get an optical set from these recoded if you ever have to do so in the future. Um, so that that's actually a typical thing for Dobsonians. Um, you are eventually at some point... If you're going to keep this telescope for a couple decades, at some point, part of the long-term maintenance of owning a Dobsonian is eventually you're going to have to have the mirror, probably the primary at least. Uh, most elliptical secondaries um, have a much different coating on them. But most primaries, you'll probably want to get recoded every 10 years or so, roughly. Um, just, you're in a, you have to pay attention to your mirror coating on there, but these are made to last. And that's why we have a quartz overcoating over our uh, reflective surface. Like I said, we do reflect 94% of the light coming in, which is actually pretty good. There's not a lot of coatings that do much more than that um, from anywhere. Of course, you can do 99%, but it's generally, generally a dielectric coating. Uh, most secondaries have a dielectric coating. A lot of diagonal mirrors have a dielectric coating. Those are very strong coatings. Um, they reflect a lot of light, like I said, 99%. The problem with a dielectric coating, and the reason why you don't generally want to dielectric coat a primary is you have to grind the coating off of the optical surface. Um, if you're just, so that means if you have a primary mirror that has that coating and you want to recoat it, you basically have to refigure the entire mirror in order to get those coatings off. Where general coatings like what we use and pretty much all the other major manufacturers use you just uh, put that, put some acid on it, it eats the coating off, preserves the figure, and then you just clean it up, throw it in a vacuum chamber, recoat it, and you're done. Very simplistic thing. So don't ever get your uh, primary dielectric coated. At least that would be my recommendation. Um, like I said, we have a protective overcoat, gets you about a decade. Um, our 14 and 16 inch mirrors use conical primaries. Now, 
I have some people who get confused on what a conical primary is. Now, a conical has nothing to do with the surface of the mirror, the figure of the mirror. The figure of the front of the mirror is still parabolic even in the 14 and 16s. In our 8, 10, and 12, those mirrors are just a standard monolithic piece of glass. It's a disc of borosilicate that sits in the cell. It's got a flat back to it and, you know, just a thick piece of glass. Conical mirrors are a little different. Um, if you've ever seen like a schmidt cassegrain mirror, it's very similar. So there's the optical surface and then it, it's a conical cone shaped on the back and it's center mounted with a large uh, bolt that's actually uh, glued into the back of the mirror. And then the whole assembly drops into the cell. Advantage of a conical mirror, particularly in these larger models, is the edge thickness on these is very thin, which allows the mirror to cool faster. And it's also a little bit lighter weight than having a full thickness or a you know full chunk of glass there. Also, as the mirror moves, as the glass moves towards the second or the center of the primary, it's thicker. So the, the mirror is basically self-supporting of its own weight. So it's kind of a neat thing. Uh, and that's on the 14 and 16 inch models only 12 inch and down is a standard monolithic uh, piece of glass so hopefully that helps there hardware um we use crayford focusers on the entire line the 8 inch and 12 inch is just a single speed 2 inch crayford focuser you can trade these out with other manufacturers like the feather touch focuser uh, you could put a moonlight focuser on it um, there's some other options out there too, if you wanted to switch it out. Um, but it's just a standard two inch, uh, dual single speed. Uh, you don't get the dual speed model until you get to 14 and 16. Um, but those are on there. It's a standard 11 to one fine focus, dual speed, two inch, uh, Crayford. That's on the larger two. Uh, we do include eyepiece adapters, the inch and a quarter and two inch. The, you can see the inch and a quarter right here. It's kind of this long tube and then flares out to a two inch base at the bottom. This doubles as a T-ring adapter. This tube, I meant to actually grab one, uh, but this tube right here threads off and you'll notice there's some outer threads here on the uh, bottom flange. That is a T-thread. So you could technically mount your favorite camera directly to this with the included adapters and you're ready to go. We also include a two inch adapter we get some questions as to why we use these extenders and not just put the eyepiece directly in uh, to the focuser. Reason being is that there is a lot of different accessories on the market. Newtonians are well known to have very minimal focus travel. So if you want to use, you know, uh, a wide range of different accessories, or maybe you want to hook up a camera, Dobsonians are not generally the best option to do astrophotography with because they don't account for field rotation like a equatorial mount can handle. Um, but if you want to do pictures of the moon, I've seen some very impressive images doing lucky imaging where you're just taking a ton of short little 15 to 20 second exposures and stacking a ton of them. Um, you can get some pretty impressive stuff. But if you wanted to hook a camera up, that adapter is there. Um, and the reason why we have the adapters uh, all together is so you have this extra length for focusing a variety of different accessories. Now, a very common thing that happens if you're a new owner for any of our Dobsonians is they stack these two adapters together in the focuser, which pushes the eyepiece too far out to get you to focus. These adapters should only be used one at a time. If you're using inch and a quarter eyepieces, use the inch and a quarter adapter. If you're using the two inch one, use the two inch eyepieces. Do not use them together. They don't work and it will not come to focus. So just a heads up, if you're looking at one of these and you get them, it's a common issue. Just don't use both of them together. Uh, the collapsible OTA is kind of a unique feature. It's kind of like a truss Dobsonian, but it doesn't break down as much as a truss. Um, it allows the tube to be collapsed. Um, it reduces the overall length of the tube for travel. Like our 8-inch, I think, goes from like 44 inches extended to 33. All the specs are on our website on skywatcherusa.com if you want to know about it. Uh, makes it easier to kind of get your hands to lift the telescope up and into the car. It also takes up less space in the car. 
by reducing the length there. Um, the nice thing about this, because these do not come apart. I've had people ask if they can take the upper cage off. You can't. It's made to be a single unit just collapsed on itself. The nice thing about this, unlike a truss design, is you're not actually dismantling the optical system. You're just reducing it. Advantage of this is it keeps collimation pretty well aligned. We've shipped these to shows all over the place, and more often than not, they arrive very close to collimation, even going down some rough roads. So a nice thing about that collapsible uh, capability is your collimation isn't going to be you know, mo you know, pushed off into oblivion because you went down a rough road. So they do keep collimation really nicely. Uh, there are two positions. So a lot of people don't know about this, and this is why I wanted to bring this up. There are two locking positions on the trusses. When you first pull up, those truss poles are going to start extending. There are two holes drilled into the struts. There's the first locking position, and then the second locking position. You're going to get to the first one, obviously, first. This actually makes the upper cage about four inches or so closer to the primary mirror than when it's fully extended. The advantage of this is if you're into bino viewers, you can actually keep it in the first lock position and it gives you four inches of in-focus travel, which means you can actually use bino viewers without a corrector. You don't need a Barlow anymore. We've tested it actually with the Teleview bino viewers. It worked pretty well. It was kind of cool to be able to use those without the need of some Barlow, because then you can actually use, you know, lower power eyepieces to get the deep sky view without having to amplify it 2x and make everything bigger. You don't want to make it bigger if you don't have to. So all of the models, 8 inch through 16 inch, have the bino viewer position um, in the lower portion there. That's also a reason why the secondary is larger. So it gives better illumination when it's in the lower position. And maybe if you want to do astrophotography and you need some in-focus travel, you can actually reduce the tube length and have more in-focus for your cameras if you need that. So kind of a unique feature of the collapsible series. Second position is basically fully extended. This is how you would basically use the telescope if you're going to be using it. Here's an example of all the, the positions there. I'm going to make myself disappear because I'm kind of in the way. There we go. So collapsed the tubes all the way down. And I would mention that generally when you're traveling, you're going to take the tube out of the base. Uh, the tube, you take the tension handles out or unlock it. Tube comes out and then the base is apart. So just a heads up. But here's the collapsed. Here's second position. You can see that it's about four inches or so lower to the primary and then fully extended. Those are the three positions that you can put this teles these telescopes in. And it just gives you a lot of focus positioning on, on a Newtonian, which is normally very limited. If you've ever played with a Newtonian, you've racked the focuser out, you're only talking about two, two and a half inches worth of travel. That's nothing compared to say like a refractor or a Schmidt that has a lot of room to focus different things. Um, so the collapsible features on the flex tubes allows it to be flexible for a lot of different things. That's the reason it's called flex tubes. Uh, again, typo there, ignore that. Um, so all the telescopes come with pretty much the same accessory package. Uh, you're going to get a 25 and a 10 millimeter plossel. You get a two inch, an inch and a quarter eyepiece adapters. You get the DC power cable, cigarette lighter. Uh, style plug hand controller you also get a 50 millimeter finder i meant to put that in there but you get a 50 millimeter finder on all of these as well um if you're looking to power these in the field we use the celestron power tank lithium power packs whether it's the standard one or the pro pack um the nice thing about those is they're small enough or they have a velcro strap to actually strap to the black handles on where you lift the base we actually strap those to the handle. It's a standard 2.1 millimeter center positive plug. So it works with these telescopes have a wide variety of power sources they can be worked with without any real unique connectors. Um, but we like using those power packs because I can strap them to the base and then just run it right up and you don't have any cable problems um, 
when the telescope is actually slewing around, it's not going to drag the battery around or get all tied up. You can actually put the battery on the base and then it just rides around with it. That's what we use to demo them at star parties. So that's what, if you're ever looking around or you're getting one, I would recommend the power tank lithiums from Celestron. They work really well. And I can tell you from experience that they're a good option. Uh, the finders on these are just standard uh, 50 millimeter 9x50 straight throughs. They're not a correct image or anything like that. It is a standard Cinta finder, so you could switch that out to whatever you like. Put a Telrad on it if you like. Generally, once the go-to system is aligned, there's not a lot of use for the finder if you don't need it. Um, so, yeah, it's just align it and go. Uh no, there is no aviation. Uh, I think it's a CX-12 is what we use on our other equatorial mounts, that big two-prong thread-on adapter. That is not present in the FlexTube series. It's just the standard 2.1 millimeter center positive. Um, if you want to run it off of a extension cord, recommend that we use the Celestron 12-volt 5-amp. You don't need 5 amps, but 5-amp is what we have here. Works really well. But any usual thing, I think you need about three amps if you're looking for an ac adapter i would get one that's at least a three amp output that way you've got enough power to run the telescope electronics so these are go-to dobsonians the bases have motors on them and gears and all kinds of stuff in there so it actually tracks and you're good to go we have a forty-two thousand object plus database you can add some user objects in there uh, we have the standard messier ic ngc catalogs in there so you'll be busy for a while um, as far as that goes now we do include a hand controller it's our standard red backlit hand controller it's got the two line display but about a year ago we actually upgraded these and it also has wi-fi built in on the motorboard now I don't know if I've got the right one. Yeah, here we go. Um, here's our new motor board. This is the MC14 board. It's actually the same one that we use in the AZGTI and E's. This has the Wi-Fi built in on it. And it basically allows you to, the telescope emits its own Wi-Fi signal. You do not have to have internet in order to make this work. Um, get a lot of questions on this. At home, your Wi-Fi router just emits Wi-Fi. That is the wireless signal that it connects to. It really has nothing to do with the internet. That's just the signal that you're connecting to. It's a lot like Bluetooth. It's just how the data is transmitted. You can have another device emit Wi-Fi. It's just a method of which two wireless devices can talk. I've had that question come up quite a bit. So even if you're in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere, you can still connect to the Wi-Fi signal on the telescope. And that is available on all the models now. If you're getting one right now, all the models are available uh, with Wi-Fi. You don't need our Wi-Fi adapter because these come with the Wi-Fi built in and ready to go. Um, so you have two ways of controlling it once you get it. The hand controller or Wi-Fi capability. I meant to do that in here. The Wi-Fi control is actually done through our SynScan Pro app. And we actually have it now to where you can use Sky Safari as well. The way that works is you would do the basic initial alignment in, in uh, SynScan Pro on Android or uh, iOS. You would do the initial alignment there. Once the telescope is aligned and oriented to the sky, you can change commands over to uh, Sky Safari. And then you can do all, all your fun stuff in Sky Safari which is obviously the most popular way to control uh, telescopes nowadays. Now we also have another feature called Freedom Find. Uh, these telescopes are equipped with auxiliary encoders. So there's the motor that we use, I believe it's stepper motors. It reads the step to move the telescope around the sky. But we have an, an additional set of encoders as well, one on each axis. And what you're able to do with these, if you want to use them like a regular Dobsonian and you want to manually move it around, you can loosen the clutches, manually move the telescope around the sky without losing your alignment, which is kind of a cool feature. Uh, one thing I would like to mention is the 8 and 10 inch models have internal clutches that are not 
adjustable. So if you want this feature and you really want that feature to be easily usable, you probably want to look at the larger 12 inch and above because they have uh, adjustable hand clutches. Really easy, just rotate them real smooth. And then you're able to point around the sky and then re-engage the clutch if you want. Where the smaller ones are, because of the design, they don't have enough room to accommodate that. So the clutches are internal and they can be really tight. And you might move the telescope. It's just difficult on the 8-inch and 12-inch, or 8 and 10-inch. So I'm just being upfront about that from someone who's used it. Um, but that's up to you. Another thing I would like to mention, if you have these and you want to improve the pointing accuracy for your go-to, you can turn off the auxiliary encoders. So it just is doing one readout from one encoder system. It can actually help improve your pointing accuracy of your go-to system. So there's advantages and disadvantages of having both in there. It's kind of a cool feature if you want that. But um, you have to give some where you have to make a compromise somewhere um, when you put all this in there. So if you want the best pointing accuracy for go-to capabilities, turn off the auxiliary encoders. But if you want to have that ability to move things around the sky, keep them on. Let me break down the series here real quick, then we'll get into questions because there's actually quite a bit of them today. Um, our smallest model right now is the FlexTube SynScan 200P. Um, some of you might be wondering what the P stands for. It stands for parabolic. Um, so any Skywatch or telescope that has P at the end of the number is a parabolic mirror. So that's how we do the naming configurations. Um, the SynScan 200, it's an 8-inch f5.9, so 1,200 millimeters. At that f-ratio, coma really isn't an issue. So if you're thinking about adding a coma corrector, yeah, I wouldn't even say you need one with this model because it's like f6 practically. So don't even worry about that. Uh, now, this being an 8-inch model, an 8-inch is a very serious telescope. You're talking about 78% more light than a 6-inch telescope. So if you're looking to actually jump into a serious telescope, you know, maybe you had your first little thing, maybe it's a small 80-millimeter refractor or something tiny, and you're actually willing to make the jump to something substantial, an 8-inch is probably where you'd want to start anyway. You're talking about a limiting magnitude of about 14, which means the entire Messier catalog, all 110 objects, is easily visible in this size of a telescope. So lots of room to observe. You could probably never see everything in a lifetime of what this size telescope could show you. It doesn't matter what manufacturer you go through. An 8-inch telescope is a serious piece of kit. Um, and... You can see a ton of stuff in the nighttime sky. Planets are also amazing with this kind of aperture because you're getting the resolving power of that large primary mirror in there. So if you're interested in deep sky and you really want to jump in and be serious about it, an 8-inch would probably be where I would at least start. Now, moving up the line, of course, we have the 250. The 250 is actually not much bigger then the 8-inch. The base is the same diameter. The tube is about the same length because they're both 1,200 millimeters. Um, so as far as weight and what you're hauling around, if you can swing up to the 10-inch, you're going to get 57% more light than the 8, and you're not talking about much more hardware that you've got to pull around. So you're getting about a half magnitude more reach than what an 8-inch is going to give you. And that'll help pop galaxies out and some fine details in the 8 or in some galaxies and such. Um, it's not going to show you anything more than the 8 would, but there's going to be details that are going to be easier to see in an eight in a 10-inch telescope versus an 8. So it is f4.7. You are going to get some coma a little bit towards the edge. I've played with these. I still don't think a coma corrector is needed, but it becomes a personal preference after you after you go below F5 if you really, really need one. Um, another thing I would like to mention on the, the 250 model is it is a little nose heavy, so you might need to add some counterweight to the back of the tube. Maybe it's like a workout weight, like a sand weight, like a pound or whatever, to help balance that out. I have people who write in about this. This is typical of Dobsonians. It doesn't matter how high-end the telescope is. It's basically a teeter-totter balancing these things out. And 
they are pretty well balanced as they are configured but if you want to add a lot of fancy stuff to the front and this is true for all of them at this point um, just the 10 is slightly nose heavy for whatever reason um, the more fancy stuff you add in the front maybe you're doing a bigger finder or multiple finders maybe you're putting a big old lvu 31 nagler on the top of it maybe you're putting a coma corrector you're adding more weight to the front so you may need to add some weights to the back of the telescope to help balance that out and make tracking smooth. That's true with pretty much every Dobsonian ever. Just letting you know. Oh, one more thing. If you're actually thinking about getting one of these or maybe you've got one, it comes up a lot. In the base here, you're going to see the, the bottom panel and then the ground board panel. If you ever get one of these and you look between those panels, there's a piece of white. It looks like packing foam in there try not to remove it that's just a very simplistic uh way of keeping dust and debris out of the motor assemblies that are down there because of how close to the ground they are if you remove the foam it's not the end of the world it is glued in place so you're gonna have to fight to get it out of there if you really want to but that's meant to be there don't take it out just leave it there it's meant to just help keep things clean in between the boards all right let me pound through this and then we'll get to questions now we're getting to the serious stuff, the FlexTube 300. This is the 12-inch model, a uh, little longer focal length, 1,500 millimeters. So your, your image scale is going to be a little bit bigger than the 1,200 on the 8 and the 10. You're a little longer focal length at f4.9, so coma is a little bit more corrected on that. You're talking 44% more than a 10-inch. So if you have an 8-inch and you're thinking about going bigger, a 12 would be the next logical jump. Uh, for that going from an 8 to a 10 doesn't make any sense um, you'd want to jump up to a 12 uh, 12 limiting magnitude is about 14.9 about 15th magnitude 12 inches really where galaxies start to pop so if you want to start resolving some of those details in a galaxy and getting some pretty decent deep sky objects a 12 inch is probably what I would consider because it is a serious aperture at this point um even you can see from the 10 inch it's you know nearly 50 percent more light from the 10 to the 12 i don't know if i would jump from a 10 inch to a 12 inch as an upgrade i'd probably go to the next level up um but it's still going to be a pretty substantial aperture um, at this point you're gonna with this amount of aperture in a dark sky you're gonna be seeing some very faint objects um with something like this all right the last two of the line the first one is the flex tube 350 this is the 14 inch uh this is a big telescope um this one is something you're gonna want to consider for travel purposes i actually think the 14 is a little bit more is a little bit easier to travel with and i'll tell you why um first off uh this is a longer focal length, 1650. It's f4.6. Maybe if coma is annoying to you, maybe think about doing like a Teleview Paracore or something like that. I don't think it's that bad at f4.6. 36% um, more light than a 12 inch. If you're looking to go from a 10 inch, the 14 would be where I would probably be thinking. You're almost a full magnitude jump at that point. This is a substantially larger telescope than the 10 inch. Um, at that 15.2 limiting magnitude on good conditions you could probably glimpse the central star of the ring nebula at this point which is actually quite a feat um, if you've got filters like h beta uhc o3s once you pass 12 inch those become very nice accessories to have because now you can actually have the light throughput to see these faint little things and those filters will be much more uh, desirable to have uh, this has the manual clutches I was talking about, but the reason I think this one is more portable than the 12-inch model is this one actually has uh, screws on its base to where the base breaks down. So the baseboard is a piece, the side panels are two pieces, and then the middle panel in between the side panels, the front panel there, is a piece. So you can actually break down the base into four smaller pieces, and it actually becomes almost more portable than the 12 inch model so that's the 350 uh, model or the 14 inch 
Now, lastly, we have the biggest one. This is our largest Dobsonian at this point. This is the 400P. This is a 16-inch telescope, 1,800 millimeters at 4.5. If you're really interested in deep sky, 16 is a phenomenal aperture size to have. I made my first serious investment on a telescope at a 16 inch i jumped from a 10 inch to a 16 that's a full magnitude jump as far as what you're able to get crazy noticeable so if you have a 10 inch and you want to go to something big a 16 would be your logical jump uh from that point it's impressive how much more light you're getting from a 10 inch telescope on this um a lot of things are on the table with an aperture a telescope of this aperture uh, planets are amazing because you have the resolving power. You can throw a lot of magnification on it because you have a lot of light throughput and angular resolution with that big of a mirror. Um, much of the NGC catalog, those weird IC, you know, galaxy clusters, um, nebulas, really impressive detail in nebulas. A 16-inch telescope is going to be serious stuff. Um, but it also comes with a serious amount of equipment to move around this is a very big telescope you'll probably need a step stool or a step ladder to actually look through this when you're at zenith it's right about six feet ish i think at zenith about 72 inches um at zenith so even a person like myself i'm about five foot eleven i need at least one step when we're up high at zenith for something like this um but yeah, it's still got the manual clutches. It's got the base breaks down, which is very helpful. It does have that conical mirror, so it helps cool that down. But that's the big, big scope of the line right there. Um, detail in the Whirlpool is really impressive. The Whirlpool Galaxy uh, arm structure and M81 and all that cool stuff. Um, now, the difference between the 14 and the 16, you're only talking about 30% more. So you'd probably see a difference if you had the two side by side. I actually prefer the 14 because it's easier to move around. It's not as heavy. Uh, a 16 is kind of because of the tubes uh, weight. It's kind of pushing it for one person. One person could do it, but you have to be ready to handle it. A 14 I feel is pretty easy to handle. You don't really need a step stool for the most part when you're using a 14 inch. Um, so if I'm bringing out one of these, I'd like to reach for the 14 more often. Um, I'm willing to make that 30% reduction in light for easier use in the field. But either of them are very impressive scopes. So hopefully that helps at that point. That's pretty much it. That's the whole line. So if you liked what you saw here, you can go ahead and subscribe to the channel. Um, info at skywatcherusa.com if you have any questions on it. Next week, I think, is going to be very helpful for a lot of people. We're talking optical cleaning. I get so many questions on how do I clean my mirror? How do I clean my lens? What should I use? That's what we're going to be talking about next week. I got to set some, we're going to try some different camera stuff, hopefully, if I can get all that so I can show you guys how that all works. But yeah, next week, join us. We'll be doing an optical cleaning uh, demo on how to clean lenses and basically just how to handle your stuff. So hopefully that'll be helpful. But if you guys have any questions now, I know they're floating out there. I will be happy to answer those right now. So let me go through what's floating in here and get some of these questions answered. Okay, let's go back. There's a bunch of them in here. First question. Sorry for a question on the Quattro series episode. Do the primary mirror holding clips cause diffraction spikes? Yes, I've seen them happen before. Um, they can cause little nicks in your, yeah, diffractions in there. Um, it's not a big deal. I have seen some people make like little rings to go around the edge, which gets rid of it. But yes, um, those are visible in your images if you look close on the quattros um, for that. Uh, next one. When I'm collimating my scope, it is really hard to get that red dot perfectly centered in the donut. Does it have to be exact? As long as it's in the center, um, it should be fine. I know it can take a little bit of getting used to. Some people use Bob's knobs and replace the secondary collimation uh, screws to have something that's got a little bit more tactile grip. I just use like I like to use longer hex wrenches or maybe a T a T hex wrench. Uh, gives you more control over that. 
but as long as it's in the donut, you should be pretty close. Uh, you know, these aren't super fast optical systems, so it's not, you know, the end of the world. If they're a little bit off, it should be pretty forgiving. But if it's in the donut, you're close enough that it doesn't have to be, you know, exact. Uh, are you planning to do a future episode on your PDS Newtonians? Um, the F5 Newtonians, we don't really carry here in North America at this point. And we've talked about it. I don't think there's any plans to release those again here. Um, the Quattros are very popular and we have some new stuff I can't tell you about yet in the Newtonian lines. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, will it work on my Mac? Um, we do not have a system that works on Mac yet. I'm hoping that will change, at least on like a Mac computer. Um, if you have a iPad or an iPhone, we do have our iOS version of SynScan Pro. You can control it through an iPad or iOS with our app and then move control over to Sky Safari if you want to do that wirelessly. But we don't have any major support for Mac as of yet. I'm hoping that will change. Uh, next question on here. The finders are not right angle correct image. They're just straight through. You could replace it if you wanted to. It's just a standard Cinta style finder. Um, there's a variety of dealers that offer some third party finders if you want to have that correct image uh, option. Uh, any site that will show even sketches, what you will actually see in the different scopes and eyepieces. Um, we've talked about that. Showing comparisons visually between each model is actually very difficult to do because if you do it with a camera, it's the cameras are going to be way more sensitive than the human eye. Um, it also depends on where you're actually going to be doing the comparisons. Uh, we've had done events where we had actually had all five models out. You could bounce from model to model, and there's a difference. It's a fun exercise to do, um, but nothing at the moment. And that's it's hard to show something like that because everything is so subjective. Everyone's eyesight is different. Every site is different. All the conditions are different. So there's a lot of variables showing the true differences between each one. But it's we'll take a look at that a little bit more. Uh, how about light shrouds in hoops, etc., to keep them out of the light path? Astro Zap as light shrouds for these um, all five models and they do have hoops inside of them to keep the light shroud out of the light path um, just go to astrozap.com just pick what model you want for your telescope um, they are very nice shrouds and they're fitted for these telescopes so if you need a shroud for these astrozap is where you should go on that um, so keep an eye on that uh let's see I have an original 12-inch flex tube SynScan auto tracking model um, purchased in 2011 um, when we first released. Can I upgrade to the Wi-Fi hand controller? Uh, you can get the SynScan Wi-Fi adapter. They're like 60 bucks or something like that. It replaces the hand controller and it should make it go to um, and Wi-Fi capability. That's the easiest way to do it. I guess you could try to buy an upgraded base, but that's going to be substantially more expensive and harder to obtain than just getting the little $60 Wi-Fi adapter. So if you have an older model and you want it Wi-Fi, just get the, the SynScan Wi-Fi adapter. It's a lot easier, um, and that's why that little thing exists. Uh, so you're saying if we have an 8 or 10-inch, we should not move to... Uh, move the scope manually it could damage the scope no um, the 8 and 10 inch do have slip clutch designs in them it's just their internal unlike the 8 inch or the 12 inch and larger they have manual like tactile hand clutches that you can actually grab by hand and loosen the 8 and 10 have those clutches inside and there's no real easy way to loosen them so they can break in over time you can still manually do it. They're just a lot harder because of generally how the tension is set um, at the factory when they assemble them. The tension's a little tight. Uh, to loosen those up to make them easier to move manually. You won't break anything. It's just, it's not the best design. I wish we would have just done hand clutches on that. Maybe in the future they'll do that. Um, but yeah, you can still move it. You won't break anything. It's just, you could probably shift the telescope in its position a little bit like actually move the base without actually moving the telescope um, the way you want to. 
Um, so there's that. It's just they're harder to do by hand on the eight and uh, ten inch comparison to the larger ones. Uh, fourteen and sixteen are more portable because of the collapsible base. That is true. Um, it makes it a lot easier when you can break those base components down so you don't just have this big weird thing standing in the back of the car with these, you know, support arms. Um, so I do think it's a lot easier on the 14 and 16s, uh, particularly if you're comparing a 14 to a 12. It's a little bit bigger, but the base breaks down, so it, it's a little easier to kind of move around. Um, is the 16 really that much better than the 14 at this level? It's noticeable. It's only 30% more light gathering. So if you had the two side by side with the same magnification, you'd probably see a difference. I don't know that it's that big of a difference. So it just kind of comes down to how much you want to spend and how much you want to deal with in the field. If you want the biggest thing, 16's there. Um, but I find the 14 is a nice compromise if you want to be able to move it around easier as a, as one person. Maybe you don't have much as much room in the car. Um, the 14 is a bit smaller. We have all the measurements on our spec page, so if you want to check that out more. Um, but I do find the 14 is a little easier to lug around into the field than a 16 might be, especially if you're just one person and you don't have some friends coming out with you. Um, is it possible to provide handles to carry the tube? Oh, the collapsible tube. Um, we don't have any. I have seen, it was on Astromart, I forgot, it was like these strap handles, they are really cool, I'm not sure who sells them, but it's like loops that go around the tube, they like Velcro tight, and you can pick it up, normally the way I like to carry these is I like to collapse the tube, and then I usually grab right in here, there's normally a gap between this white ring at the bottom, and of the bottom of the upper cage, and the top ring of the tube, of the lower tube, um, I like to grab, put my hand in between that gap and probably grab right on this ring and then put the other hand on the back ring and just pull up, and it works really well. So there's that. That would be my recommendation for how I'd like to move those around. Um, can you please repeat the power supply name? Yes, uh, we use the Celestron Power Tank Lithium batteries, either their basic model or they have the Pro model if you want a bigger one. And I like these because they have a standard 2.1 millimeter um, center positive plug that comes with it. So you have everything when you get the battery. You just pop that on the handles there. You can see right behind the text here, there's like a black uh, handle. Just Velcro the strap that's supposed to go around a tripod leg, but Velcro the strap there. And then the power hub is right above it. It battery rides nice and clean on the base and don't worry about, you know, cables getting all tied up. All right. Uh, is there any chance of a 20 inch? They did do a prototype 20 inch collapsible as well. A little different design that got nicked really quick because it'd be great in an observatory, but it would probably kill you um, if you tried to move it around. If you want something that's probably bigger than 16, like 18 or 20 or any of those dream level telescopes, I would probably recommend at this point that you just go to Obsession or Teeter or New Moon and just get that telescope that way. Those the, That level, you should really just get a truss. Um, we did offer the Stargate series. Uh, the 18 and the 20s, um, we've discontinued those, and they just don't, they're just too big for the Skywatcher product line. Um, if you're getting a telescope of that caliber, you know what you're getting into, you know what to expect, and at that point, you want to have everything to be top-notch capabilities and uh, qualities on that, so I would recommend just going to a custom job maker to get exactly the telescope that you want to get if you want to go for something that big. Um, I've had access to obsessions before. I've owned a 20-inch obsession. I've got a 28 I'm building right now. Just go to a custom maker if you want something bigger, even if you want something smaller, but if you really want to go to that 18-inch plus category, there are some really good options out there um, that I would recommend. All right, that's 11 o'clock. Uh, we wrap that up. Uh, that's the end of today's episode. Thanks for hanging out with us, guys. I uh, hope you have a safe weekend. Uh, we will see you next 
Friday for our optical cleaning episode. Um, and of course, if you need anything else, go ahead and contact us, uh, either email or phone. And we'll be happy to talk to you about pretty much anything you like. So without further, without anything else, uh, have a great weekend. Stay safe and clear skies to everyone. See you guys next Friday. Bye.